2007, November 29th. Today is Lecture 45, Exoplanets, Planets Around Other Stars. Right. So we've really complete, finished most of the topics we have to discuss in the solar system. We could go into a lot more detail, but it sort of seems pointless. Let's actually turn to one much, two more, two topics we're going to close out the course with. We want to ask questions now about whether there are planets around other stars, <clears throat> and today's, que today's question is primarily about how we go about finding them and what we found over the last few years. And tomorrow's lecture will then ask the question, if we find planets like the Earth, how would we actually ask the perhaps more interesting question, how can we find out if there's life, around, life on such planets? So today I want to talk about exoplanets. That's sort of become the catch-all term for planets around other stars. Try to distinguish a planet around our sun from exoplanets means basically around everything else. The basic key ideas I want to cover today is we're going to be talking about the search for planets around other stars. And in particular, we're going to focus on the various search techniques and the rationale behind them. This is going to be a lot of, in many ways, a lot of review because we've seen a lot of these things before and there's going to be some new stuff here as well. We're going to find a series of, of, of methods, astrometric wobble, Doppler wobble, sometimes called the radial velocity or RV method for short, the method of planetary transits, and the method of gravitational microlensing. All four of these have been attempted. Three of them have been, in fact, now, the latter three, have been successful in finding planets. We'll then want to go on to describe a little bit about the extrasolar planet systems that we found. It's going to be a very much a sketchy outline because really a lot of what we know now is, is mostly a uh, statistical exercise. What are we seeing? How many of what type of planets are we seeing? And so forth. But there were some real surprises. And in particular, the big surprise is the dominant form of planet we know about now is Jupiter-sized planets very close to their parent stars, well inside the frost line, in fact, closer to their parent stars than Mercury is to our own sun. These actually challenge solar system formation models, or at least demand a much more active dynamical evolution among these systems than have been expected. We'll say a little bit about that there. Now, one of the things I've done is that normally this lecture would lead into a second lecture talking about the details of the planets we've found, but I've decided to instead focus on the question of searches for Earth-like planets and, of course, the question of how we look for life around other planets for tomorrow's lecture to end the quarter with. So let's go right to a, a, a question I think that's one that, that you know, if, if I look in terms of, you know, questions people ask me because they know I'm an astronomer, I'd say first and foremost with a bullet is, are there extraterrestrials? Are, is there life on other worlds? Number two is about black holes. Number three is about the Big Bang origin of the universe. And number four is, what is my sign? So it's sort of increasing from the most interesting down to the utterly clueless. Um, <clears throat> I tell them my sign is keep off the grass, and that usually conf confuses them. Um, but there really is this big question about, we've looked at our own solar system. We know there's life here on Earth. And of course, the biggest question, as we've learned about the vastness of space, is are there other planets like our own out there? In particular, we can break this question down into a series of, of, a series of questions which become more and more difficult to answer as we go along. The first of these questions is, are there any other solar systems around other stars? We only knew up to about a decade ago of only one solar system, this one. Are there solar systems around other stars? Are any of those solar systems that we do find, the second question, if we find solar systems, how many of them are like ours? Or are they, in fact, very different? Are we unique in some way, or are we actually sort of just the boring norm? Once we've found planetary systems, if we find any like ours, then the next question, of course, becomes if any of the planets in that system look like our particular home planet, the Earth. 
both in terms of where it orbits around its parent star as well as perhaps its properties, its atmosphere. And of course, if there is a planet like the Earth with liquid water and an atmosphere, the next obvious question becomes, has life arisen on that planet or perhaps on any other planets? And that's also a very difficult question to ask if you haven't answered some of the ones that have gone before it. And finally, the last question is, if life has arisen, the most interesting question of all, is that life intelligent? Is it a life of a sort that we could perhaps communicate with in some way or another? And what I've given is a hierarchy of questions from seemingly impossible to answer to absolutely, utterly impossible to answer, or at least certainly that seemed so 10 years ago. In fact, when I first started teaching at Ohio State in 1992, if I'd given a lecture like this, the lecture would be over now, and you could all go home, because in fact we would have been able to answer, I don't know, to all five of these questions. In the last 10 years, this field has changed dramatically, in that we now have definitive answers for the first question, are there solar systems around other stars? We are beginning to get reasonable answers for the second question, are there solar systems like our own or are they different? I would say now we are actually on the threshold of beginning to be able to answer the third question, are there planets like the Earth around other stars? It's largely a question of technology and technique, but in fact, as we'll see towards the end, I believe, in fact, that before this decade is out, we will discover at least one Earth-like planet around a nearby or even a very distant star. Whether that's an Earth-like planet, meaning like ours in terms of size, that's an easier question. If it's like us in terms of size, liquid water, and location around its star, I'm not so sure if we're going to answer that one before 2010, but I'm very confident now that we could answer this one. Hell, we could answer this before the end of next year. The question, has life arisen on other planets, that sounds like an almost impossible question to answer, and tomorrow we're going to pick up that question in particular because I think it's one we can answer, if not right away. And the final question still remains a subject of tremendous speculation. Now, of course, those are broad, general questions. What we'd really like to boil it down in science is we'd like to boil it down to questions we can answer quantitatively rather than just speculation. Do I think there are planets around other stars? Of course because there's nothing you could think about in the formation of our sun and the consequent formation of the solar system that should physically preclude other stars from also having planetary systems. But that's an opinion. That's an opinion based on pretty good fact. What we'd really like to do is quantitatively answer how many planets are around other stars. So the problem really comes, becomes one of search. We're going to look for things. The searches we can look for is we can look for solar systems in the process of formation. We have this idea about a solar nebula surrounding a proto-sun and planets forming out of that. What we want to go out is look into the universe, look in nearby space where we see very brand new young stars forming. Do they look like what we think our solar system looked like four and a half billion years ago? And the answer to that turns out to be, yeah, sure do. The second thing we can do is we can go looking for evolved solar systems around other stars. Now not just simply see solar systems forming, but see them after four and a half or four or five billion years of dynamical evolution. Do they look like the relatively benign place we live in today? Can we find them? How do we find them? And how do we quantify how many they are? Are they common or are they rare? And that's really what the second question is about. An evolved solar system is one that has already formed and looks kind of like ours does today, at least dynamically, if not in detail. Can we find evidence of life on other planets? How do we go about doing that? Just life in general, not necessarily the last question, life we can talk to. <coughs> the last question, evidence of technological intelligent life on other planets, sometimes referred to as the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI for short. 
This actually is a scientific question. It can be approached technologically. You can take a scientific approach and a scientifically critical approach to answering questions in that. This is not a matter of opinion or belief. This is a matter of asking a quantifiable question. What are the criteria by which we judge each of these things being done? Today, I want to highlight the first two. Solar systems in the process of formation and evolved solar systems around other stars are the ones for which I can give the most definitive answers at this time. At least certainly that's what I'm going to be concentrating on primarily today, in particular on the searches for evolved solar systems around other stars. So it's really the second topic that we'll be, we'll, we want to talk about. These are scientific questions. These are questions we can answer. In fact, they're questions in the last decade we have been answering. So what it boils down to is we want to ask, if I want to ask the question, does that star right there have planets circling it, yes or no? What I'm doing is I'm asking, does that, do we have exoplanets? Are there planets around other stars? So this comes down to a question of how you go about doing the search. There are two basic search strategies that have been developed. And in fact, there's really only two strategies that we can really think of that will work well. The first of these I call the duh obvious method, which is basically directly detect them. The first obvious is one, you should go out and you take a picture of the star and you see if there are any planets circling it. I've been showing lots of computer-generated pictures of what our solar system looks like from the outside. We saw that wonderful picture the other day, for example, of, this, of the Earth as seen through this, the rings of Saturn. Well, this turns out to be a very, very difficult thing to do. In fact, we have not yet definitively taken a picture of a planet of any kind around another star. There are a couple of candidates that have emerged in the last year, but really it's very difficult. And the reason is because parent stars are extremely bright whereas planets are not self-luminous. Planets shine by reflected light from that star. And they are vastly, vastly fainter than their parent stars. And so it becomes the problem of seeing a big lighter against a nuclear bomb, basically. We have to sort of, you're looking straight down the brightest light possible and looking for a tiny firefly flick of light. That's exceedingly difficult in the present time, although some techniques are beginning to be evolved to do that. But they're still a few years, maybe a decade or so away. The other way we can do it is a slightly backwards way of looking at it. Planets are solid. If a planet gets between you and its parent star, it's going to block some fraction of the light from that star. When one body crosses the face of another, not a complete eclipse. Eclipse is when you totally block it. But planets are smaller than their parent stars. So a planet moving in front of a star is only going to block maybe a fraction of a percent of the surface of that star, the face of that star. But that's going to reduce the light coming from that star by a very little bit. It's going to be a very characteristic drop in brightness because we'll see the brightness drop when the planet enters one side of the star, fall down while the planet crosses the star, and then the brightness will go back up when the planet's no longer in the way. We call this process a transit. So it causes a very characteristic and observable dip in brightness. And in fact, it turns out of the so-called direct methods, the transit method has become very useful of light. And in fact, nearly 30 planets around other stars have been discovered by this method, as we'll see in a moment. The second way is to acknowledge, is to basically play the same game that Urban Le Verrier and John Couch Adams played in our solar system in the 19th century. Namely, they saw that the planet motions of the planet Uranus were not as predicted by Newtonian physics, that they suggested an additional wobble in the motion of Uranus, which was due to the gravity of an unseen body. That unseen body was the planet Neptune. 
And of course, using the gravitational perturbations, they were able to predict very accurately where Neptune, or that unseen eighth planet, should be. And in fact, when Johann Gala pointed his telescope at the predicted position, there was Neptune waiting to be seen. So we can take a leaf from that and we can say, we know that stars orbit, planets orbiting a star, not only does the planet move around in the gravity of the star, but the star, as we know from Newton's laws, must itself have a small reflex motion due to its mo- gravi- the gravity felt from the planet. <clears throat> the idea that planets orbit with their center of mass at one focus. So what we're going to find is that we can use the gravitational effect of the fact that one small thing is orbiting a bigger thing, the star, to detect planets. So we can look, for example, for the orbital motions of the star. Even if the planet is so faint we can't see it directly, its motion would cause the star to wobble back and forth in a very characteristic way predicted by Newton's laws. And so we can look for that orbital motion or orbital wobbling and we can use that to infer the presence of the mass of that planet and indeed measure the mass of that planet. The other way is even more exotic. We use the fact that we haven't gone into in this class the Newton's theory of gravity is only the beginning. The modern theory of gravity is general relativity due to Albert Einstein. And general relativity makes the very interesting prediction that light passing around a massive object bends in its path so that a massive gravitating object acts like a kind of a weak lens. And in fact, if a star can produce a gravitational lens, so too a planet circling that star will also have a lensing effect as that planet and its star pass between us and a more distant star which is being lensed. And this is a method called gravitational microlensing. Basically, a background star is microlensed by its parent star and itself as they pass between us and that distant star. This sounds very far-fetched, but in fact, as I'll show you, Ohio State has, in fact, been one of the centers of this research and of the known exoplanets now, six and soon to be six of the eight known microlensing planets were discovered by an OSU team, of which I'm kind of proud because I'm a member. So we'll tell you a little bit about that as well. So of these techniques, all four of them are technologically possible or about to become possible, and three have been bearing fruit over the last decade. So let's look at the wobbling stars picture, because this is the most successful. Remember Newton's version of Kepler's laws of planetary motion. Newton's version of Kepler's first law is that planets orbit stars with the center of mass at one focus. Now, I've drawn an exaggerated difference between the parent star and a very massive planet here, and you can see the common center of mass between them is stationary. Because the the more massive star, of course, just like on a balance beam, is closer to the center of mass than the less massive planet. So what this means is, while the planet is zipping around really fast, in that same orbital period, the star moves around with a much slower reflex motion. We know it's slower because it takes the same time for both to go around the circle, the period of the orbit of the planet, but the circle of the star is smaller than the circle covered by the planet. So naturally, it's moving slower. How much slower? The ratio of the speed is basically the ratio of the masses. So for example, if the planet was 1 1 1,000th the mass of the parent star, the parent star's reflex velocity would be 1,000th the orbital speed, the orbital speed of of the planet. And we'll see that's actually fairly important. So we know this is going to be slow and very subtle. Now, What we get is, if we could see the system looking down upon it from above its orbital plane, what we would see is we wouldn't see the planet here at all, 
but we'd see the star wobbling back and forth because it would be feeling the gravity from the mutual gravity of the planet and the star making this center of mass based system. And that's a, that's a way we can exploit the gravitational orbital motions to tell us the planet's there. Even if I don't have PowerPoint to help me see that planet, I'd be able to see that physically. Now there's two ways in which this wobble can manifest itself. One of them is we simply watch the star against the backdrop of all the other distant stars and we see the star doing just that. It does a little jigger dance around the sky because it feels the gravity from all its planets tugging it to and fro about the common center of mass of its planetary system. Because I'm measuring the position of stars with respect to background stars, a process called astrometry, measuring the stars, we call this astrometric wobble. So if I was to take a picture of a star against the background stars and then take a picture once a year, every year, year after year, what I would see is the position of that star would jigger around a little bit. Now we expect this wobble to be very small because the stars are, you know, even if you take our own solar system for an example, the sun is a thousand times more massive than Jupiter. And Jupiter is the biggest planet in our solar system. That means this motion is going to be very small because the planet I'm sorry, the star is very close to the center of mass of that system. And in fact, for even our solar system, the center of mass is inside the sun. So it's a very small wobble of the center of the sun around its common center of mass. Furthermore, it's best seen if you're looking down on the orbital plane like our cartoon. If you see it edge on, what you would see is kind of a backwards jigger and jog of the star moving backwards on a line if you were looking exactly in the ecliptic plane of our solar system. So what would this look like looking at our own solar system from the outside? Well, really, dynamically speaking, the two biggest planets in our solar system are Jupiter and Saturn, and everything else is just junk. So if I was on a star 18 light years away from the sun, straight up out of the ecliptic, so I was looking down on the ecliptic plane of the sun, and I proceeded to take a series of photographs between the year over a 30-year period from 1990 until 2020, what I would see is the sun would follow this kind of odd little loop-de-loop spiral pattern against the sky due to the combined effects of Jupiter and Saturn plus a minor effect due to all the other planets combined. And so I would see it move in a very characteristic way. And I could in fact back out from this motion what the masses of the planets are and where they were in their orbit at this time. But look at the scale here. That scale from the center to the very edge of this diagram as I've drawn it is one one-thousandth of an arc second. Remember that a second of arc is one-sixtieth of a minute of arc, and there are 60 minutes of arc per degree. So this is one three-million-six-hundred-thousandth of one degree, or what we'll refer to sometimes as a milli-arc second. And in fact, that's only average size of the envelope. The actual year-to-year motion is less than a milli-arc second. That requires an extremely high precision of measurement of a position of a star, and we're only now beginning to be able to achieve that using space-based methods. So with future space missions, for example, the Space Interferometry Mission, or SIM, and a future European mission called Gaia, will actually have the kind of precision of measuring the position of a nearby star against a background of more distant objects to be able to see astrometric wobble out to stars maybe out to about 50 light years from the sun. So this is a technique which should be very foolproof and very, very definitive, but it's also phenomenally difficult 
People thought a couple of, you know, back when I was a kid, for example, and in high school, there were announcements of possible discoveries of planets around a star called Barnard Star. That turned out to be false detection. Because this is such a hard method, the technology just hasn't caught up with it. So it's really never yet succeeded, but we know it has to because this is exactly what our solar system does. The other way is not to, in fact, use trying to measure the shift in position against the sky, but remember that the Doppler effect, the fact that when a light source moves towards you, the wavelengths of light are shifted slightly towards the blue, or when a source moves away from you, the wavelengths of light are shifted towards the red, is very, very precisely measured because we're now measuring the wavelengths of light in a spectrometer. It turns out with the Doppler effect, I can measure speeds down literally to meters per second. And that means I can see very, very small motions indeed using the Doppler shift. So what we do is we look for the orbital motions not by looking for backwards jigger and jog in space, but by actually measuring the speeds using the Doppler effect, a modified version of what the police use with a microwave radar, except now I'm using the light from the star rather than bouncing light off in the case of a radar beam. The way it works is as follows. Here's that star and massive planet that I've showed before moving around their common center of mass. The planet is utterly invisible. It's a billion times fainter than the star, but the star is moving in reflex to the orbital motion of the planet. We're sitting off here to the left, taking a spectrum of that star. The star is a hot, dense gas, producing a continuous spectrum, but the light goes up through the star's atmosphere, and so just like our sun, it's crisscrossed by very dark absorption lines. I can measure the wavelengths of those absorption lines very precisely because I can identify, for example, hydrogen lines and calcium lines on the Earth that are not moving. And I see them shifted slightly, I'd say, oh, that star is either moving towards me or away from me. So in this instant, the star is moving towards me, and the lines will all shift towards the blue. If I wait half an orbital period later, now the planet and the sun have basically traded places on either side of the center of mass, and now the star is moving away from me. When the star moves away from me, the lines now shift to the red. The dotted lines here represent the unshifted position of those lines. So as I watch the star's spectrum over the course of a complete orbit around the star, I would see the entire pattern of lines just slop back and forth, back and forth, first going blue, then red, as the star comes towards me, then away from me. And if I map it out in detail, I can actually tell you exactly how fast the star is moving. I can tell you whether it's speeding up and slowing down. If I had an elliptical orbit, remember Kepler's second law tells you you go faster when the planet and star are close together and slower when they're further apart. So I can actually even tell if the orbit's elliptical. By telling you the speed of an orbit, I can tell you the mass from Newton's version of Kepler's third law. So you can see where all those things we were learning about have an, a very specific application. It actually allows me to measure the orbital speed and the period, which gives me an extra bonus. Not only have I learned that there is a planet there, but the pattern of speeds combined with other information about the star tells me the mass of the planet. Am I looking at a Jupiter, a Saturn, a super Jupiter, or maybe even an Earth? We call this the radial velocity measurement, radial velocity method, because I'm talking about the motion towards or away from me on a radial line between me and the line of sight of the star. So this is how we measure the so-called Doppler wobble with radial velocities, or the so-called RV method. Now, the fact that the star is bigger than the planet means it's going to be moving really slow. How slow? Well, again, let's look at the Jupiter and the Sun, and the sun as an example in our own system. 
Jupiter's orbital speed in its orbit is 13 kilometers per second. That's how long it takes to go around an orbit. 5.2 astronomical units in semi-major axis for 11.2 years. Now, because the sun is a thousand times more massive than Jupiter, it is a thousand times closer to the center of mass, and therefore its speed is a thousandth of a 13 kilometers per second, or 13 meters per second. To put that in perspective, a person walking at a pretty fast pace is one meter per second. So we're seeing the sun wobbling back and forth slower than a car drives down the road. So this is a very, very slow speed indeed. And it means we have to refine our methods for measuring Doppler shifts to very, very high precision. Okay, we have to get down to meter per second precision. The current state of the art is surprising. It's three meters per second is now routinely achieved with the best radial velocity measurements using spectrometers on three meter class telescopes. There's a brand new technique that the Europeans have been uh, pioneering. They use an instrument called HARPS which works on a three meter telescope down in Chile. It routinely achieves one meter per second precision on a number of nearby stars and has in fact achieved sub-meter per second precision in a couple of limited cases. So it is in fact possible to get down to, we think with the next generation of technology, can probably get down to the level of speeds of 100 centimeters per second or even tens of centimeters per second. That's not 10, but tens of. That's going to be exceedingly challenging. But the fact that we can get down to three meters per second means I could actually detect a Jupiter around a sun in another star system. And that's the sweet spot we needed to be able to use this method to find stars around other planets. And it was approximately 12 years ago that in fact this finally, was, finally happened. The technology in 1995 had reached the point that a Geneva group led by Michel Mayor and Didier Coyoz observed a, a series of stars, nearby sun-like stars, using a radial velocity method. It was good to about five meters per second at the time. And one of those stars they looked at was a star named 51 Pegasi. It's a sun-like star about 40 light years away in the constellation of Pegasus. They watched it over the course of a number of months and they saw its velocity slop back and forth by a little over 50 meters per second. In fact, the total wobble is about 56 meters per second. But the surprise was, first of all, that's a big velocity. Remember, the Jupiter, we're expecting 13. But that would go back and forth on an 11.2 year period. That's the period of Jupiter circling the sun. This wobble had a period of 4.23 days. So when you put Kepler's, Newton's version of Kepler's third law together with all this velocity data and some information about 51 Pegasi, what you find is a half a Jupiter mass planet located five one hundredths of an astronomical unit from its parent star locked in a circular orbit. Well, a half a Jupiter mass is definitely sort of in the gas giant uh, zone but what's it doing 0.05 astronomical units from its star? Quite naturally, the closer the star and the planet are together, the, the faster the reflex velocity is going to be, the closer you are to your respective centers of mass. And so as a consequence, the radial velocity method is superbly sensitive to wacko planet systems like this, Jupiter-sized objects fairly close to their parent stars. Well, the advantage of the radial velocity method is it's based on simple physics and it was simply a technological effect feat to be able to get the, pre the precisions down so you can get to meters per second precision. It's been phenomenally successful. 
85% of all the known exoplanets have been discovered by one of two or three teams using radio velocity method and dedicated telescopes. You got to look year after year after year, month after month, night after night at hundreds of stars to be able to find the few where you get the close-in planets. In fact, it's superbly sensitive to finding very massive planets around relatively nearby stars. Furthermore, it's a nifty technique because the sensitivity actually gets better with time. A slow orbiting Jupiter in a, in a Jupiter-like orbit around a sun-like star, you have to watch it for 12 years in order to be able to see a Jupiter-like planet, see one complete orbit, which is what you want to confirm. So not surprisingly, the first time after they turn the experiment on, they're going to find the really fast period ones. After five years, they start picking up the five-year period ones. After 10 years, you start getting into the 10-year period ones and so forth. Of course, those big ones in big orbits are moving progressively slower, but what's helped the technique is as the, many, as the years have passed, they've been able to beat down their, their precision so they can actually measure these. <clears throat> the other big advantage of this is that it gives an immediate estimate of the minimum mass that that, star, that exoplanet can have. Now, it's the minimum mass because there's a little bit of a trick here. I don't know how the orbit is oriented. <coughs> Am I looking at it directly at John? Or am I looking at it tilted? That changes the projection of the measured velocity because all I see is the component of that velocity along my line of sight. I can't measure the component that's transverse to my line of sight. So it establishes the smallest these planets can be unless I can get some other information that clues me in as to whether I'm looking at the orbit edge on or face on or tilted in between. So it's kind of a disadvantage but it is still an advantage. It gives you a mass immediately, and the mass tells you whether you're looking at a planet or just a weird kind of binary star because you've got a very, very massive system nearly viewed face on. So how do we get, it, get at less uncertainty? Well, the other way we can use is one of the direct methods, which is if the planet's orbital plane is actually lined up with my line of sight. And then as I orbit around, every now and then, the planet will, in fact, get between me and its parent star and cut a little bite, block a little bit of the star's light. When it does so, the intensity of that star will dip a bit. I'm blocking that fraction of light blocked by the planet, and that will stay at that fainter dip until the planet passes out of the other side of the star, a process called a transit. Now, this is a really small effect because planets are small compared to the sizes of their parent stars. And so I'm talking about a dip of maybe 1%, 2% at most, probably a half a percent. For something like the Earth, an Earth-like planet, I could be talking about a fraction of a percent, a tiny fraction of a percent of the light being blocked. Also, it's going to be biased towards fairly close-in giant planets because the closer you get to your star, the larger range of tilt you can have and still be lined up and the closer you are to your star, the more of the light from the parent star you block out. So if you just think about it geometrically, it kind of makes sense. You're also going to be very sensitive to close-in planets that are big. Well, despite these caveats, 33 transiting exoplanets or exoplanet candidates have been discovered, most of them in the last few years. It took people a while to figure out how to do the super high-precision light measurement trick consistently, night after night, day after day, to be able to do this kind of observation. Here's a star with the wonderful name HD 209458 and its planet HD 209458b. 
This was the very first transiting planet discovered. It was already previously discovered through the radial velocity technique, and there were suggestions from the radial velocity data that it might be one of these nearly edge-on orbits. So it might actually transit its parent star. An amateur astronomer was given the coordinates and went out and watched it and caught one of these transits. They then turned, of course, space telescope to it once they knew it was transiting. And this is what the pattern of light looks like. The 1.0 here is the unblocked flux of the star. And then as the planet moves on to the limb, it begins to bite into it. And you get this characteristic curved shape. Because, of course, stars aren't uniform disks. They're illuminated spheres. So you have a slight illumination pattern. But you can see that the size of the dip is only 1.5%. So it's a tiny, tiny dip. But what you can see, the precision of these techniques by looking at the jigger between the adjacent data points here gives you an idea of the amount of noise, the precision of this measurement. So here is showing that you, when you get the transit, you can, amongst other things, you can precisely break this degeneracy and tilt and measure the mass directly. In the case of HD 209458b, we know it's exactly 0.7, the mass of Jupiter. It's got its orbits at 0.045 astronomical units from its star with an orbital period of three and a half days. And in fact, we can do this for a variety of stars. In fact, here's just a quick sampler of a number of these transit planet light curves that have been studied. Some of them are very flat bottom. Some of them are kind of round bottom. It depends upon whether you go right across the equator of the star, you kind of just graze it along one side of its limb. What are the advantages of transits? One of the big advantages of a transit is it gives you the only way to measure the radius of an exoplanet. Hey, you get its mass from the orbital velocity, you got its radius. Mass divided by volume is density. And remember, one of the big themes of talking about the solar system is if you can measure something's density, you're getting a handle on its composition, what it's made of. So in fact, we can estimate the composition of these things. Is it a gas giant? Is it a rocky Earth? Is it an ice giant? We can tell that from a transiting planet. You have no clue from a radial velocity planet because you have no way to measure the radius of the planet. But the radial velocity, the transit method, because how much of the star is blocked is what air, fraction of the area is covered, it exactly, the radius just drops right out. The other thing it gives you is the only way we know of at present to probe the atmospheres of an exoplanet. Because remember, if I take a bright continuum source and look at it through a cold, thin gas, I get an absorption line spectrum. So if that exoplanet has an atmosphere and it's getting between me and the star, during the times that the planet is between me and the star, I'm going to see extra absorption lines in its spectrum, which are going to come from the cold gases in that planet's atmosphere. And in fact, this has just begun to be tried using space telescope and other assets. It's really, really hard. And they've so far been able to detect things like water vapor, carbon, and oxygen, in fact, in HD 209458b. So in principle, with the right techniques and the biggest honking telescope you can get your hands on, you can actually start measuring the compositions of exoplanet atmospheres and transiting systems. There's another trick that I won't mention using thermal infrared emission. A big Jupiter is, remember, Jupiter's self-luminous. Jupiter puts out more infrared energy than it receives from the sun. So if I go to infrared wavelengths, and because of Wien's law, the star is mostly shining at visible light, but the planet's mostly shining at infrared. In principle, I can see the secondary eclipse. And actually, people have begun to do that with the Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope. And we've actually begun to map the surfaces of some of these exoplanet giant gas planets. 
In fact, the latest techniques from space using a, an instrument called Kepler, which is about to be launched in the next year or so, could in fact push the photometric precision down to the point that you might be able to just start being able to d detect things the size of the Earth. But it hasn't achieved that yet. And in fact, some of us are not so sure they can actually achieve that kind of precision. It's a really big leap in precision. But here's the real payoff. If you can measure the density, you can make this mass radius plot. And where different planets fall on here depends upon different types of compositions. So for example, the light blue lines are for hydrogen helium gas giants. These dark blue lines are mixtures of iron and metal ices with ga hydrogen gas. The red line is for silicates and metal, and the green line is for a pure iron planet. Well, notice where Mars, Venus, and the Earth lie right in the silicate planets. Jupiter and Saturn are up here in the gas giants, and sitting between a silicate object and a hydrogen object are the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune. The purple dots that you see up here are all of the transiting exoplanets with enough data to be able to make this measurement. And notice that most of them are gas giants, but one of them, in fact, is an ice giant. And we're able to tell that because we can measure its radius and measure its, its, uh, its density. So you can actually begin to study these things as planets. We're getting on just, oh, cool, another planet discovery space. We're actually beginning to do astrophysics with these planets, which is very, very exciting. What we can also use gravitational microlensing, basically the way it works. We're here on the Earth. Here's a star between us and a distant star. Einstein tells us the light will bend around that star. And so I get a slight amplification. As the star moves across the sky, and when it gets exactly between us and the star, I will get an amplification of the brightness of the background star. So as the star goes between me and the distant star, I get a sudden brightening and then a fading. So it's just seeing the light from the central star, and then bang, I get the extra light from the background and on. Now, this is what I would get from a single star, but if that single star in the foreground has a planet, I'll get an additional little blip from the gravitational lensing of the planet itself. This blip can be small or large, depending upon where the crossing occurs. But in fact, it would tell us the presence of a planet around the star that's doing the lensing. And in fact, eight planets discovered have been discovered this way so far, six of them by the microlensing follow-up network, known as MicroFun for short, uh, which is headed by Professor Andrew Gould in our department. It also has as the other two investigators in our department, myself and Professor Darren DePoy, and a number of graduate students. We've actually only formally published the results for two planet discoveries. We've got another four in the can right now, moving towards publication. It's only been in the last couple of years we kind of figured the trick out. Here's what one of these microlensing planet signatures looks like. Here's one of these microlensing events. This particular planet produced a double bump. Boop, boop, like that. And here's all the data. You have to have stations throughout the southern hemisphere, all around in longitude. So we have a telescope in Chile. There's a, a, a Polish telescope called Ogle in Chile. On, uh, Microfun Chile is our telescope. Farm Cove, New Zealand and Auckland, New Zealand are a pair of amateur astronomers who contributed to this using 12 and 10-inch telescopes. Amateur telescopes equipped with CCDs could play this game. Palomar Observatory, the MDM Observatory in Arizona, another professional observatory in New Zealand, and then a couple of, of stations in the Canary Islands and on, in uh, South Africa. And in fact, we would not have discovered that first microlensing planet had it not been for the work of Grant Christie and Jenny McCormick here. It might be interesting to note that Jenny McCormick at the time of this discovery was a single mother working at home 
and who at night, when her kids were asleep, would turn on her telescope, and she responded quite out of the blue to a request for people to observe this particular event. Her data were absolutely critical to the observation discovery of this planet around this star. And I'm very pleased to note that in the last year, she was named, um, given essentially an honor by the British Empire, that basically it's a uh, night, not, not quite Knight of the British Empire, but, but in the day of the Queen's birthday honors in New Zealand, it's the highest civilian honor that can be given to a member of the Commonwealth for her role in this discovery. This is another microlensing signature. This is one of those microlensing events that shows you how very, very subtle these can be. This is the first Neptune mass planet found by microlensing event. This data was taken by Dokken Ahn, an OSU graduate student at MDM, who just happened to turn on the camera at Andy's request and blasted away at this event at exactly the right time. And we discovered a Neptune mass planet, in fact, a super-Earth Neptune mass planet, around this star. The advantage of microlensing is that it is superbly sensitive to planetary systems that look like our own solar system. It's not dependent upon close-in Jupiters like the radial velocity or transit methods. The other thing is it's one, it only works, however, with the planets around very, very distant stars. We're actually finding these around stars many thousands of light years away rather than nearby. Now, this doesn't help us to follow these stars up because they're so far away, but because we're looking at a very much larger set of stars, we can do a reasonable census how common are planetary systems. And this is the real thing that's exciting about this. This is probably the only technique that may be able to detect Earth-mass planets from the ground. And this is why I have confidence in saying I believe with microlensing we will discover an Earth-mass planet around some distant star sometime in the next couple of years. We finally figured it out, and we've in fact gotten some money from NASA to go out and put a whole bunch of telescopes in amateurs' hands. And we built a southern hemisphere network that's going to do this. Maybe this year, maybe next year. We don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen. So I'm real excited about it. So here is a summary of all these different techniques by mass and size of the orbit. The radial velocity method has found most of the planets. They're up here. This radial velocity sensitivity, however, has a, a lower limit. You can only detect really massive things fairly close to their stars. For reference, here's the Earth and Venus, Jupiter and Saturn. So the radial velocity techniques are only now beginning to be able to find Jupiter and Saturn-like planets but there's no way for them to see Venus or the Earth. Astrometric methods like SIM and Gaia are still decades away. The microlensing technique, we've just started to push it down where we could just begin to find an Earth in an Earth-like orbit. So we're very excited about this. And of course, the future Kepler mission may be able to do that for much closer in objects. These funny symbols here and here, these purple symbols, are the four microlensing planets we've discovered. So what do we know about these new planets? At, as of today, there are 260 planets known around 220 other stars. Most of them are single planet systems, although in the last few months, last few years, 25 multi-planet systems have been found. And just this month, the fifth planet in 55 Cancri has been found. It is now the only near solar system analog we found with five planets detectable through radial velocities. Most of the planets that are being found are Jupiter-sized planets that are much larger than Jupiter. In fact, they're ranging up to 13 times the mass of Jupiter and down to about Neptune mass. There are a couple of tantalizing super-Earths, perhaps as small as five or six times the mass of the Earth, but we still haven't succeeded in finding an Earth-like analog. The other thing is that the techniques are still early days, so they're all orbiting within five astronomical units of their parent stars. So this is the largest planetary system we found outside our solar system. 
This is the 55 Cankery system shown in comparison with our own solar system. We're beginning to find things that look like what we expect, but we've also found a lot of surprises. These are, to conclude, very strange new worlds. These are off all giant gas planets orbiting well within the frost lines of their planets, and they have orbits smaller than Mercury. These are a big challenge to what's going on in planetary formation. But the big question is, okay, so we're finding planetary systems. We're finding Jupiters. When are we going to find Earth, and how would we find life? And that's the question I'll take up in tomorrow's lecture.